0: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging.
1: Compost is one of these nebulous terms anyway. I mean, it can be anything, it can be to a, you know, a, just a basic carbon product up to a highly sophisticated formulation.
0: This is the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast. Hi listeners, I'm your host Edgar Gresta. In this episode, we're looking at compost, or what the dictionary likes to call decayed organic material used as fertilizer for growing plants. And for farmers, it's like black gold because it's really valuable for efficient, high-quality food production. But just like gold, it can be pretty expensive and hard to source. We'll talk to those who produce it, those who study it, and those who use it to help you get the best out of your compost.
2: There is not, as far as we know, a reasonable local producer of compost in our area.
0: That's Lizzie Buscaino from Piccolo Farm in Thirlmere, New South Wales. She grows and sells mixed veggie boxes to local families and specialises in edible flowers selling to cafes and restaurants.
2: The compost that we get has normally been rushed and what happens is that it's still very hot, it's still very alkaline and in that condition it's not suitable for us to use straight onto you know, the plants or onto the beds. In Not in the quantities that we want to use it. We, we do like to use quite a bit of compost because we don't use um, a huge amount of other amendments. We don't want to use huge amounts of nitrogen-based things. We prefer to use a large amount of compost. We think that that is much more beneficial in the long run. But if you put large amount of alkaline compost on the ground, your plants are going to be very unhappy about it because that's going to reduce the amount of nutrients that they can take up. So what
0: exactly makes up good ingredients for balanced compost? Here's Eric Love, Chairman of the Center for Organic Research and Education.
1: There's carbon materials and there's nitrogenous materials. So to put that simply, you've got basically twigs and branches and things like that, and then you've got food food waste. Now you combine those together in um, the right sort of uh, ratios, it's called a carbon nitrogen ratio so you have more carbon than you do nutrients and then you end up with a compost that's usable. So you can do that at home, it's not It's not rocket science, that one, but there's a few principles like aeration, diversity, aliveness, moisture, a few things that you need to do, but it's simple.
0: And if we we scale that up to small-scale farmers, do the same rules apply? Are there things that we should consider if we're scaling up?
1: Yes. Now, normally with a farmer, he would get that from a commercial supply, which comes from the curbside collections. There's a lot of curbside collection of organics, uh, started back in the 90s. A commercial composter gets that stuff that's picked up from people putting it in their bins and goes through a process. It's a fairly long process and then then gets supplied to the market. That's a fairly well-known system. There's windrow systems, there's enclosed systems. They all produce quite a reasonable quality uh, of product.
0: Now, for many people, when you think of compost, What comes to mind is that little bin that sits on the kitchen bench collecting all your food scraps. But when you dig a little deeper, it's so much more than that. According to AORA, the Australian Organics Recycling Association, the businesses they represent recycle more than 6 million tonnes of organic material each year. On the flip side, more than double that amount still ends up in landfill. Now just to clarify, organic in this case means anything created by Mother Nature, including things like food and garden waste. To break that down a little more, in 2014 and 2015, the New South Wales Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, did a garbage bag audit of commercial and industrial waste. Of the half a million tonnes that ends up in landfill each year, about 80% can be recycled right now. And just over 30% of that is organic, compostable food. And when it comes to agriculture and food production compost is both a problem and solution to the challenges of the circular economy and cycling nutrients. Here's Eric Love again. You hear paddock the
1: plate, but that's not really the cycle. It's paddock, the paddock is the cycle, you've got to get back into the soil. You know, why do we need compost? Soil regeneration, you've got better structure, you've got organic matter in there, it stimulates the microbial activity, which is quite beneficial then you've got that resilience factor. And what compost has, it's got high moisture holding capacity, so the water hangs in, it hangs for quite a considerable amount of time. So a lot of the um, organic farmers aren't as drought affected. If it goes on for six years, I mean, there's a point at which everybody suffers for that. There's also heat and temperature stabilization that happens there, That's, uh, that's one of the compost benefits. And it can increase the productivity. So there's a kind of financial benefit there. And then there is the cost benefits. And that's like water savings because you've got that moisture holding capacity that has another effect because particularly for irrigators i mean it's good for non-irrigators because they you know they can take advantage of rainfall and it it, uh, hangs onto it but in terms of irrigators they save a lot in energy because they don't need to use as much water they're saving quite a significant amount so the energy that they use to pump you know, is lowered, so you've got energy reduction. Your chemical input reduction, like um, fertilisers and pesticides, you haven't got the right soil. That runs off and has been running off into our waterways and causing, you know, eutrophication and uh, all sorts of problems there. So that erosion control, you know, by stabilising the soil, that's a, that's a good cost-benefit. Hang on to your topsoil. Yeah. And then uh, in terms of your topsoil maintenance, there, um, there, there's some key things that, uh, that compost can bring to a farm.
3: Perhaps the most important thing for people looking to use compost in their operations is, is looking for some level of evidence that the compost meets the AS4454 Australian compost standard. So there's, there is a standard in Australia for compost that measures a whole lot of different components and has some controls in it around process.
0: That's Simone Dilcara. She's the manager of Lantasia Organic Compost, based in Braidwood, New South Wales.
3: There's a whole bunch of testing you can do to demonstrate compliance with the Australian compost standards. And that includes tests for pathogens because we know that material coming into the composting process may have, you know, diseases on green waste material. So we, we would need a composting process that we know is going to knock out any diseases or any pathogens or any seeds that are in the material coming in. We do that by managing the process and making sure we get maintaining temperature goals throughout the composting process. We do that through the microbial process. So at Lantasia, we use a fermentation process. So rather than turning the compost all the time and relying just on temperature to knock out diseases and seeds and et cetera, we use a fermentation process as well.
0: Lantasia Organic Compost is part of a larger certified organic farm business. Being certified organic makes it easier for Simon's customers because Lantasia manages all the compliance and paperwork.
3: One of the ways it's generally accepted to demonstrate that you've knocked out pathogens, like the disease-causing microbes in the compost, is to test for some indicator species, and those indicator species are E. coli, fecal coliform, and salmonella. And you know that those, particularly E. coli and speaker they're everywhere in the environment generally. So, so we know that they're on the material coming into the composting process. We know that if they're not in the compost at the end, that we've knocked out. If we've knocked out those pathogens, then we've knocked out all other pathogens. That could be a problem when the compost is used. So they're caused pathogen reducing indicators, so we test for those in every batch. And the benefit of knowing that you've knocked those out of the compost is that a lot of our customers are vegetable growers, like they might be doing salad greens or lettuces. They also don't want to be putting our compost into those salad greens paddocks or plots that have got E. coli, I think it's called almost salmonella in them. So it's part of our compliance testing that we'd be doing anyway is also really Good process control for growers, so they know that with this input, they know that the tests have been done to show that when the compost left us, it didn't have any of those pathogens in it.
0: Now all this testing and compliance means that producing well-balanced and safe to use compost can be expensive, and a big part of Simon's job is educating her customers to get bang for their buck.
3: You know, it's no point putting thousands of dollars worth of really expensive and good inputs in if you haven't done the basic foundation. So If you think about what a healthy soil needs or to grow really good plants, it's a combination of the lime minerals, the rock component of soil, which is the calcium and magnesium and all that. And then you have the organic matter, which can be satisfied by the compost and then the microbial activity that's happening. And if you think of it as a pyramid, the most important foundation for the soil isn't actually the compost. It's getting the lime minerals sorted out. And in Australia, we have such ancient soils that the lime mineral component really, really important. And it's really easy to fix. So some people think that compost is a, you know, a complete fertilizer. And it kind of is and can be as long as you've got those lime minerals in place.
0: And for Simon, there's a really cost-effective way to make sure that you've got your foundations right, and that's with a soil test.
3: So for a really basic Soil test. We would use sweat down in Victoria because they they're not selling amendments. They're just a lab. So they'll just you can ask for a basic soil test. Go and take your soil samples. They'll let they'll tell you how to do it, and you tell them what crops you want to be using to growing. So if it's a market garden, you can say, yeah, you know, I want to grow brassicas and I want to follow up with lettuce and I want to grow tomatoes as well in that same plot. They'll send you back an analysis of your soil and they'll let you know in either kilograms per square metre or tonnes per hectare what amendments you need to be able to grow each of those crops. And the lovely thing about that basic soil test is you don't have to be a soil scientist to understand it. It's very basic and you just need a calculator and a bit of paper to look at how much of what you need to put on. The example I was giving you about a market gardener who had been had done so much work and was was doing such a great job, and was using our compost and getting good results, particularly in the first season. But then was noticing some funny fungal things happening, and that 150 dollar soil test just showed up that there's some some imbalance with the calcium and magnesium. And those amendments are so cheap to put in. You know, it, it might be a couple of bags of lime or a couple of bags of dolomite or a couple of bags of gypsum and that's all it'll take over the, you know a hectare or an acre or whatever to sort out those lime minerals and then you can get the full benefit of the compost on top.
0: How are we going in terms of the industry actually using compost in their processes you know from from large scale to small scale farms?
1: Believe it or not it's a very small fraction of the market. It's not a question of whether it's beneficial it's incredibly beneficial but it is comes down to the economics of it just don't stack up at the moment so our organisation has found a way of providing lower cost materials to farmers and the farmers go through that those processes themselves so we train them how to do that but they do do their own thing because what we provide them is a carbon base because the, the materials that come from the curbside are, are you know quite Inert from that point of view, they're, they're, they are a carbon material. They've got nutrients in them and uh, micronutrients. But uh, what happens with an organic farm usually give they might add manures, they might add various other things, and they come up with their own concoctions of, uh, of what they like to use as compost.
0: And obviously, what's suitable for their soil exactly, type. Yeah, and kind of
1: because it is crop specific as well. You've got you know, pH issues, you've got nutrient balances, and all that sort of thing, depending on the crop. Application rates, so it's you know that that side the agronomics of it. But I think um, you know going back 20 years when I started into it, the agronomists had no idea. But now agronomists are kind of getting it um, a bit more, so they're able to advise farmers on okay. So and you, you do a soil analysis, and it gives you the the profiles of the different. Um, characteristics of that um, compost and so that okay this is what we're striving for Mm. and organic farmers are very strong on that I mean they know exactly what they're looking for Uh, conventional farmers you know a little bit different no I'm not trying to criticize them but they're not it's not their livelihood they don't need to have allowable inputs you know they're uh, they're all about okay so how do I lower my costs and increase my productivity and lower disease and all that sort of thing. So that's, that's where the benefit is for them.
0: So maybe just to summarise, if I'm a small-scale farmer looking to purchase compost from a, a commercial producer, any key questions I should be asking?
1: Well, look, you, you probably should say, do they manufacture to the standard? Whether they're accredited to the standard or not, but they should be manufacturing to that standard. It should be turned over. It should be stable, mature. You can usually get an analysis of what it looks like. So then you can fit it into the farming system.
4: We all should compost whether we think it's the ultimate best outcome to put to our garden or not. You know, we all create food waste. We have green waste coming out of our kitchens every day, every moment of the day. So, you know, it is an important part of our daily routine and cycle is to ensure that that green waste gets turned back into nutrient and put back into the soil.
0: That's Olivier Sofo from Living Earth Farms, a small-scale veggie grower based in the southern highlands of New South Wales. He's a strong advocate for DIY compost.
4: If you can grow your own compost in situ, and that's what what I what we call green manure cropping, that is the ultimate best for your plants. And you don't have to truck it in. You know, you can put the seed in the ground, and you can grow your your crop and turn it in, and there you are. In saying that, because of our size and scale, is that we don't have the opportunity to grow green manure crops on every field, every or every block, every year, because we're just too small to do that, and then to maintain profitability from a work perspective we'd have to kind of stop working for three months and then start working again and so we do make our own compost now look we have bought compost in absolutely in the past because when we first get started you know compost can take i mean you can make fast quick compost but you know we usually like to give ours about eight months we started making compost from the very beginning but we started buying compost to use until our compost was ready to be used, and as of kind of the last 12 months, we've exclusively used their own. We make about 20 tonnes of compost a season, uh, which sounds like a lot, but it's it's actually not that much. Materials for compost are re- a really important uh, discussion. You have to look for a very good feed source. That's got to be the basis. You have to look for a good source of manure and and, and green waste that enables you to um, produce a highly diverse, humified, well-decomposed humus-rich compost. And to do that, yeah, you need to just start with some good ingredients. I mean, we are fortunate to have access to two good areas of manure. One is from our neighbours who keep um, show show ponies, basically, hacking ponies, and they clean out their stables every day. So we get basically a trailer load every fortnight of horse manure. And then we mix it with all the green waste that comes from the farm. Um, so all the bed clear out, whatever that's going on, that's, that's not being obviously used or sold will go into the compost and then we essentially we create a um, ferment that we inoculate the compost with now you don't have to do this because you know whether whether you want it to happen or not you know bacteria and fungi and everything all around us and it will decompose itself you know well and truly without our assistance but we do make a bit of a lactobacillus ferment that we ferment out anaerobically with um, some cow manure. We use cow manure and we use a lactobacillus that we culture from just rice water and um, molasses. And then we basically hydrate the compost the first time that we turn it with this inoculum and then we let it sit. We don't do fast turns. We wait one month between each turn at least. And we'll make a minimum, let's say, you know, 10, 12 tonnes at a time because we have a a loader. After the first composition, we usually let it sit for, you know, at least two months. And then we'll start turning and we turn it once a month and we just open it up and turn it. And if it needs more moisture, which often it does, we'll run water on it, bring the moisture back up, turn it and cover it with a tarp and then let it go. And we'll continue that process all the way until the heat has been taken out of the compost now, we have in the past, or I have in the past, used thermometers, for compost thermometers to look at that. Now I just eyeball it. <laughs> look, this is far from a highly scientific process. You know, we're, we're just producing it for ourselves and we're, we're the only ones with the outcome. So it's not like we're selling it and promising anyone anything. I mean, we use our compost for all of our propagation because we propagate all our own seedlings. And it's fine, you know, it's it's good stuff. Is it the best compost? Probably not at all. But there are some great companies out there that are making commercial compost really well but you're going to pay for it. So we believe that if we have these resources and we make time and we can do things on farm and we have the right material, then we should be doing it.
0: For Olivier, producing his own compost is not just about saving money. It's also about reducing waste and completing the nutrient cycle. But Olivier points out that not all waste is created equal, and this matters when putting that back into your food production system.
4: If you're getting waste stream from feedlots, if you're getting waste stream from racecourses, if you're getting waste stream from urban green bins, which um, I can tell you right now, um, half of them are full of branches and the other half are full of shoes and socks and plastic bags, you are putting into your soil God knows what all sorts of things with half lives of a thousand years you know it's not a good system and look it's funny because like in half of it you want to say well look we want an opportunity to to be putting back this waste you know i mean it's sure like i'm all in for ensuring that we're not wasting things that we are returning them but you have to look at where you use those products i mean sure make compost out of very stable manure and whatever but go stick them out on trees or you know native plantings or on turf or whatever it is don't you know, don't be sticking it in your, on your farm and growing your carrots and beetroots and radishes in it because, you know, the plant, you know, when it accesses that nutrition, that those minerals and, and nutrients from the biology in the soil, it's metabolising that, it's becoming part of its plant body, it's expressing that, and that's what you're eating. If you put things in that shouldn't be there or in concentrations that shouldn't be there, that's what you'll be consuming. This is why biological agriculture is so important because it is the belief that the natural metabolic system of plants and soil and the function of soil work and are true it's saying they don't need dissolved fertilizer salts it's saying it doesn't need any of that that the plant can do all that work and the soil can do all of that work itself it needs just to be nurtured through that process that is inherently happening whether we like it or not and so by adding stuff into the soil in amounts just because we were told to do it or because it sounds like we should be doing it or whatever, and that's in the form of too much compost as well. You know, is it the right thing to do or not? I mean, look at the plants.
5: My name is Emanuela, or Manu, pre and I coordinate a social enterprise called Farm It Forward in the Mid-Blue Mountains, and we grow food in people's unused land, either backyards or front yards or whatever land they have available. We absolutely compost. I think it's in our holistic statement that we compost muchly and mulch heavily (laughs) and tread lightly. We use a completely non-disturbance method of building soil as well, where we pile on the compost and um, the, the soil microbes migrate down into the the previous soil profile and improve it. So compost is absolutely integral to what we do. Also because it, it's the habitat for the microbes that are able to cycle all of those nutrients to the veggies that we're growing. There are a couple of methods of composting. There's um, A couple of them are hot composting, cold composting and worm composting. Those are the three that we use the most. So hot composting involves making one large heap uh, all at once and making sure that you have food for both bacteria and all the things that eat bacteria but also food for fungi and all the things that like to eat fungi so bacterial fruits would include all of those nitrogen-rich food scraps and um, green clippings and coffee grinds and um, manures of, of, of any kind and then the fungal foods are more um, the things that are really rich in lignin like wood chip or wood shavings or um, straw or things like that that are dry and nice and rich in lignin and cellulose. So hot composting is when you make a big heap all at once. It has to be a minimum of one and a half by one and a half cubic meters in order to heat up a bit, uh, not too much, and then you turn it very, very regularly to make compost quite quite quickly. I would say that our our hot composts are usually ready in about three months or two and a half months and we you do want to allow a decent curing phase which is the phase where the heap stops to create lots of bacterial activity and it stops to heat up and that's when the composting worms move in and and finish the job of of digesting and redigesting that organic matter and increasing the the amount of microbes in the soil.
0: So that's hot composting and then and then what about cold yeah. composting?
5: So cold composting is a more add-as-you-go method so your heat doesn't heat up as such that's why it's called cold composting and that's really a method of again always adding a good balance of fungal foods and bacterial foods so every time you you have a um, food scraps or something that bacteria love to eat to make sure that you have lots and lots and lots of fungal foods as well at the same time. So keeping that balance and turning it quite regularly and making sure there's lots of oxygen going through it. And that's that's what com- cold composting is. It's It's really making sure that it stays aerated and that is a little bit slower but it produces an extremely diverse set of microorganisms when there is a foul smell that's usually anaerobic microbes creating organic acids like acetic acid and sulfuric acid etc etc all of those um, lovely (laughs) vomit and and vinegar and ammonia smells are usually an indicator that there is an anaerobic environment because of too much bacterial food too much bacteria not enough fungi or that it's saturated with water, or it needs oxygen through it, needs to be turned.
0: And it's about just sort of understanding a little bit about the different, I guess, like a recipe, you know, knowing that you need to have the right sort of balance of, of the different materials to, to get the right mix of compost.
5: That's the key. And some people like to say nitrogen-rich, carbon-rich materials, but I do love to just link it up to what's actually eating those materials so that you really know what, what you're creating here. You're creating food and you're creating habitat for all of that diversity of microbes in your compost.
0: Farm at Forward works in partnership with a local food cooperative called Littleton's, supplying veggies to local families, cafes and restaurants. And when it comes to closing the loop on waste and nutrient cycling, they look to their local community.
5: There are lots and lots of freely available resources for raw materials to actually make compost. So arborist wood chips we have in the Blue Mountains have a pile at the end of the road in each village in the Blue Mountains and that's an incredible resource of really great fungal food so um, you go in and get some wood chip from the bottom of that inside of that pile the stuff that's really aged and already been colonized by fungi uh, and that's excellent that's an excellent raw material for compost. Another great resource that we've used a lot is wood shavings from a local cabinet maker that's part of the Littleton Co-op community. And we know that he only uses untreated woods and he doesn't use MDFs and things like that. And every day they have just huge bags of wood shavings that they'd otherwise have to pay to put in landfill. Uh, And so we use that as an incredible resource for our... Um, worm farms. We're very lucky because um, being this closely associated with Littleton Co-op means that we have access to all of the food waste from this local co-op. Another thing that we're developing at the moment is actually the option of being able to collect scraps from the restaurants and the cafes that we're currently supplying. So as to close the loop even more um, and being able to compost those and use that compost to grow more food. And it's really so important to close that loop for those nutrients to return to the soil because, of course, yes, growing veggies is, it, it is taking nutrients, those nutrients out of the soil and it, they need to then get back into the soil in some way or another.
6: Let's say there was a hundred kilos of nitrogen in that compost heap. If I'd thrown that all out there, maybe 10 kilos of that nitrogen would have gone into the soil and been active for me. The other 90 kilos would have gone out and the, as it dried out, folatised. That's Martin
0: Ruiz from Braidwood, New South Wales. As a livestock farmer, he's in the business of growing grass. Picture him standing on a one metre high mound in the middle of a paddock.
6: In that, we put the compost.
0: He's talking to a bunch of farmers at a field day
6: Actually, I'll just pass this around. It's just great about a
0: unique way that he's using compost to fertilise his farm.
6: So the water gets slowed down, then it seeps down, the compost gets wet, and then the fertility seeps down the hill. So the idea is that gravity is my best tool of moving fertility around the farm. Basically, it's just a a little boy playing on a big farm here.
0: He worked with innovator Peter Andrews to create compost mounds throughout his paddocks, using plants to cycle nutrients through the landscape.
6: Peter suggested that I put it in a pile, and at the time the dams were empty, so I was digging out clay from there, so we mixed a bit of clay in there, thinking the clay holds nutrients together better. Put it where I get some water running off the road and put it here. So I put these here in 2009. That's 11 years ago, and sure, I'd keep adding to it, but effectively it's still doing its thing. I rang Peter up when I put the compost heap here and I said, Right, what have I got to do now? And he said, You need two plants to process the high nutrients in that compost. You need marshmallow plant and stinging nettle. And I was about to ring up the seed company and say, can you send me some weeds? And, um, and I thought, oh, that's not going to work. And I just drove down from the house down to here and went, oh, my God, look at that. So marshmallow plant, for those who don't know what it is, that's that one there. And the stinging nettle is, ah that one there. So, yeah, there's a stinging nettle. It's only just germinating at the moment. So we all know what stinging nettle looks like. So those two plants grow in high nitrogen soils and they process it so that the leachates from the, that they give off are really good for the next succession of plants. So on here, 11 years later, I've still got a high nitrogen. I've got weeds growing here and they'll grow up and this will be a pile of weeds. And everybody driving up and down the road there goes, oh Martin, you better kill those. They're gonna take over your farm. Well, 11 years later, they're still here and there's nothing out there because the leachates from here have lifted that up. It's a zone of influence. So sometimes I get people to walk out here. You can see it easily. And this zone goes right out there, right down there. And it's a good 75, 80 meters down there. So that is all being fertilized from this pile that I put here 11 years ago. Now we go back to that nitrogen. How much nitrogen did I say? 90 kilos. Oh, there was 100. 90 kilos went away. 100 kilos. The 100 kilos. So we had some scientists here a couple of weeks ago, and I said, "Oh, this nitrogen's still flowing out." 11 years later, and Walter corrected me. He said, "Martin, that nitrogen left many years ago and went down there and made the grass grow." And I said, "Walter, you're wrong because there's still nitrogen." here, And he said, Martin, you're wrong, because there's nitrogen fixing bacteria in here. And because we've got this system working, they're pulling nitrogen out of the atmosphere, converting it into uh, soluble nitrates in the soil, and, the, and the, these are still doing it. Eleven years later, I've turned that 100 kilos of nitrogen into maybe a tonne of nitrogen by having a functioning compost heap. That's working, using plants, pulling nitrogen.
0: So whether you're using plants to cycle nutrients back into the landscape or recycling waste matter to build your compost, it's important to know why you're using it.
4: I think that you have to understand what the role of compost is and, and what it does. And if you're using it as a feed source for your plants, like a nutritional source, then, yeah, you're going to need to put down a lot. If you're using it as a biological inoculant, then you're using less but you're wanting it to go further because it it's like adding a what do you call it, like a probiotic to your diet so you're not relying on compost to give you a nutritional additive for plant growth but more for a biological addition to your to the sweet that's already in your soil or a fortification of what's there already you know that all plays in role with reduced tillage or no deep tillage as well or mindful tillage where you're really looking at the times and ways that you're disturbing soil to ensure that you're not pulverizing it to dust because essentially biology requires structure to to live. It creates structure um, and structure is where plants live as well. And so each time you pulverize your soil structure, your topsoil particularly, you're essentially asking your biology to work their way, you know, re- rebuild their homes to then stock their shelves with minerals to then feed the plants that are planted in them. The amount of compost that you put on, whether you put on one ton an acre or 100 tons an acre, you've got to know why you're adding it. What's it doing for you? What's, what's the purpose? Because if I tell you to be a market gardener, you need to add 50 tons of compost an acre, and you go, holy Moses, where am I going to buy 50 tons of compost? And then you look at the price of it and you think, wow. You know what I mean? Like I might be doing you a disservice. What you need to be told is you go out and try and, 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 and looking at different systems that will enable you to get where you need to go.
3: I've seen a real renaissance in the number of beautiful young couples or small families, people wanting to grow vegetables and the, the rise of the market garden and there's such awareness. So it's this lovely thing about growing food locally, you're growing the best food that you can grow for the community. So for me, it's lovely to be a part of that. And of course I want people to buy my compost. I want them also to get the best use out of that compost. And if spending you know, 150 bucks on a soil test to get the lime mineral sorted delivers that, then then everyone wins. I've noticed that growers can feel really overwhelmed with the soil science. They've been able to take it back to basics is really helpful, I think, for people.
0: This podcast has been produced by The Grow Love Project on behalf of Greater Sydney Local Land Services through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. Thanks to everyone who participated in the making of this episode. You can find out more about them in the show notes. To listen to other episodes, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and if you know someone who could benefit, please share it with them. Thanks for listening.